Well, let's pray together, and we'll open up God's Word. What a treasure we have in your scriptures, Father. Thank you so much for giving them to us, and that we have your sure and certain word. Perfect truth from the creator of the universe in words in a book that you've given. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would help me now as I preach to be in in accord with your word, and that you'd give me the heart, Lord, that I uh, ought to have and long to have in preaching such amazing truths as we're going to see this morning. And I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts, Lord, to open us to saying yes to your word, and that we would not be distracted, and that the evil one would not be able to pluck the word out of our hearts, and that um, unbelief would not uh, squash it, and lies would not um, water it down, and that we would hear truly what you're saying in the scriptures. So come and do that, Lord, now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, this morning we're beginning a brand new sermon series on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians is the name of the book. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there to Philippians chapter 1, and if you need a Bible, we want to bring one to you that you can use this morning. We are passionate about studying God's Word here at Mercy Hill Church. The most important words that you're going to be hearing this morning are the words that are in the book letter of Philippians, and uh, go ahead and turn there. And in the Bibles we're passing out, Philippians is on page 980. That's where chapter 1, that's where it begins, 980 in the Bibles we're passing out. Now, I'd like to start by giving you some background, just some historical background to this letter. And let's, let's kick the first map up there, and I'm going to show you where Philippi is, first of all. So Philippi is right up, right up here, okay? And Paul first visited Philippi on one of his missionary journeys. It was his, his second missionary journey. And uh, he had started it in Antioch, which is down here, okay, and then he went up through here. About 49 AD is when he started. Then he visited some churches in Cilicia that had already been established, went to Derby, went to Lystra. In Lystra, he met Timothy for the first time and uh, got to know him, and uh, Timothy had recently come to faith, and God developed a very strong bond there between them, and so Timothy joined, I mean, Paul wanted Timothy to join his missionary band, and so Timothy joined him on that second missionary trip, and then they went up through the Galatia area, again, visiting churches, and were, were up in here in an area called Phrygia, and they wanted to go northeast to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit would not allow them. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how they came to that conclusion, but they weren't able to go to the northwest. So they ended up over here in Troas, and it was while there, this is so interesting, one night Paul had a vision. Not sure if it was a dream while he was sleeping or just a vision while he was praying or whatever, but he had a vision of a man over in in Macedonia, there's Macedonia area right there, saying, come and help us, come and help us. So the next morning, Paul shared that vision with his missionary compadres, you know, his missionary band, and they prayed about it and decided, this is God's leading to us. And so they, they crossed the, the sea here and went over, and, and of course the first place they ended up in was Philippi. This is Paul's first time visiting there. Now, Paul's usual approach was to go to the, the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, Saturday, and uh, usually they would ask him to be the guest preacher since he was, you know, a renowned rabbi from his past, and then he would preach the gospel. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. All there was was a group of Jewish women 
uh, meeting by a river on the Sabbath, praying. And there were some, some Gentile God-fearers there, part of that group. God-fearers were Gentiles who hadn't yet become officially Jewish, but were sympathetic towards the Jewish faith, wanted to learn more. And so he joined them, and he shared with them the good news about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the Messiah. He's come to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead. He's God in the flesh. We can trust him and be forgiven and know him. And this is what the Old Testament was all about. And God stirred one woman's heart in particular, named Lydia. And her heart just was opened up to respond to what Paul was saying. And so right then, she put her trust in Jesus Christ. And she and all those in her household who believed were baptized that day. Okay, then Luke gives us, this is all from Acts chapter 16. Then uh, the next scene is Paul and his missionary band. They're walking through the streets of Philippi, just you know, going around talking to people. And a slave girl started following them. And the slave girl had a, a demon oppressing her. And this demon, though, did give her the ability to foretell the future. And her slave masters were making a lot of money off of her because she could tell people's futures. And so Paul cast the demon out of her to free her from this oppression, which, of course, along with the demon, went her ability to tell the future. And so her slave masters were not thrilled about that. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested, and uh, they were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into prison. And most of you have heard the story, if you've been to, to Sunday school. Okay, this is the night when around midnight, Paul and Silas are worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus Christ, and God sends an earthquake. And the prison doors open, and miraculously, the chains fall off. Now, the problem, though, is that if Paul and Silas escape, the jailer would be killed. That's how they motivated their jailers in those days, okay? If, if, they, if prisoners escape, you will be killed. And so they chose not to escape, and they shared the gospel with the jailer, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he, along with all those in his family who believed, were baptized. So the Philippian church started with these two families, Lydia and her family, and the jailer and his family was the beginning of the church in Philippi. And then Paul left there, went to Thessalonica, and continued on through that missionary journey. Paul visited Philippi one more time that we know of on his third missionary journey about five years later. And then Paul ended up going to Jerusalem, because you keep reading the book of Acts, was arrested there and taken in chains to Rome, long story, and in Rome he was in prison, chained there, and Timothy, who was not in prison, visited him on a regular basis to bring encouragement and to pray with him and to, and to, to uh, just build up his faith. And it was while Paul was there in prison in Rome, this is around A.D. 62, so 12 years after Paul first visited Philippi, Around AD 62, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. So that's the that's the kind of the background in the story. So what is Paul's purpose then in writing this letter? Let's start there, just so we kind of get a, a big picture of what's going on. And if you read through this whole letter at one time, and and uh, keep your eyes focused on, on what is Paul calling them to do, commanding them to do, telling them to do, you can see two main emphases in this letter. One of Paul's concerns was that there was a lack of unity amongst them. Okay, you'll, you'll read about that. And the other concern is that although they'd been very committed to evangelism in the past, recently it seems that some, some pushback was coming, some suffering, some... Um, Persecution was rising, and they were becoming fearful and starting to pull back. 
So Paul was concerned about lack of unity and lack of boldness in evangelism. And you can see both of those addressed in this first section where Paul gives them a command, and it's chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Go ahead and look at that. It's up, be up on the screen, too. Here's what Paul says. So this is the first time when we read some commands in, in the letter. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, there's the emphasis on unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, there's the emphasis on boldness, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So two main concerns in this letter, unity and boldness. That's what Paul's focused on here, and we'll see how he unfolds that and and argues for that and develops that as we go ahead through this book. So with that overall purpose in mind then, how does Paul start the letter? How does he begin? What does he emphasize in his opening? And look at the first two verses. Here's what Paul says. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now, if you've, if you've read Paul's letters, you know that Paul kind of has a standard way that he opens up his letters, kind of follows a, a, a very similar format. But if you compare this opening to this letter with the openings to the other letters, you can see that there are three ways this one is different. That's helpful because that will help us see part of what his emphasis is. So first, he doesn't do this in any other openings, but he puts him and Timothy on the same level both as servants of Christ. Paul and Timothy were both servants of Christ. I mean, Paul could have pulled the apostle card, right? Paul the apostle and Timothy the underling, you know, or something like that. But he says Paul and Timothy were both servants of Jesus Christ. And I think this points possibly ahead to how he's going to call them to put each other first, to give each other honor, to pursue unity at the sake of their own comfort possibly, and to to serve each other in that way. So I think that's maybe a pointer to where Paul's ultimately going, because no other opening has that, where Paul does that. Second, another unique aspect of this opening, underline the word all, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He only does that in one other letter to the letter of Romans. So there's two places where he emphasizes this letter is to all you believers in Philippi. Now, if there were divisions in the church and factions in the church, I wonder if it wouldn't have been powerful. So here the church is gathered on a Sunday and they're reading through Paul's letter and the person reading says, you know, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. A powerful statement of unity. Okay, and I think that's where Paul's going with that. Then the third unique aspect of this opening is in no other place does he mention overseers and deacons as part of the opening. He says this is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so some of the commentators thought, and I think this, this makes sense to me, that he was kind of encouraging the overseers and deacons, take the lead here in helping these brothers and sisters work out their differences. Take the lead in, in moving towards unity and set an example and encourage the brothers and sisters to be bold in evangelism. Okay, so that's the opening. And three unique aspects of the opening that aren't typical of what Paul does. 
Now, Paul's typical approach, he does the opening, and then, and then what does he move into next? Do you remember? Where he gives thanks for the, for the people he's writing to, okay? There's a thanksgiving that he gives, and he, he always does that. Um, he explains how he thanks God for them. But if you, again, if you compare each thanksgiving section, you'll notice that they are different because Paul is emphasizing certain things he's been led to give thanks for, but he emphasizes certain ones that they need to hear in order to prepare their hearts for his main concerns. So what does Paul emphasize as he describes his thanksgiving to God for them? Here's what I saw as I looked through verses 3 through 8. I think the main thing he's emphasizing is, listen, brothers and sisters, it is God who enables you to obey. Struggling to obey? We all are. God will enable us to obey. God's power is available to change our hearts, to motivate us, to enable us to obey. That's where I think he's going in this Thanksgiving. So let me show you how, how I came to that conclusion. First of all, he thanks God for how they've been advancing the gospel. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your, to get this next phrase, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that, that phrase partnership in the gospel means that from the very beginning, back in AD 50, when they were first saved, the church was first started, they were engaged in advancing the gospel from that very point. So they were involved in sharing the gospel with their neighbors and sharing their testimony of salvation with people at the marketplace and talking about Jesus Christ wherever they went and helping people come to faith, just like Sean was encouraging us to do earlier. So they, from the very beginning, from the first day until then, they'd been involved in advancing the gospel. But now notice something. Paul thanks God that they'd been involved in doing this. And I want you to feel how strange this is. Okay, so if you've been working really hard at advancing the gospel, right, praying for your friends who don't know the Lord and, and having witnessing Wednesdays and, and, and sharing the gospel with people, then what, what if I said, in, instead of looking to you, I said, God, thank you for what Sean is doing. God, thank you for what Christopher is doing. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Why would I thank God for something that you are doing? It's because it's God who enabled you to do it. It's God who put this into your heart to do. It's God who caused you to do this. God did it. That's why when they're all involved in advancing the the gospel, Paul says, I thank God for how you are doing this. Reminder, Church of Philippi, God is the one who enables you to obey. God is the one who causes you to obey. God is the one who moves you to obey. So we thank God when there's obedience. Okay, so that's, that's the first part, verses 3 through 5. He thanks God for how they've been advancing the gospel. Second, this is such a powerful verse, one of my favorite verses. He says he is certain that God will complete the good work he has started in them. Verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And notice again, he's emphasizing it's God's power, okay, which changed them, which causes them to obey. They did not begin the good work in them, okay? How were they saved? It did not start with them. It didn't start with any of us. Your salvation didn't start with you. All of us 
had hearts of stone, as Ezekiel 36 says. We were not interested in Christ. We wanted to go our own way. And if God would have left us in that, we never would have come to him. But God loves us. God has mercy upon us because of what Jesus Christ did. And God began a good work in them. He reached down from heaven with his power, took out that heart of stone, gave a new heart of flesh, which, Jesus, you're awesome. I, I turned from my sin. I turned to you. I trust you. God began that good work in them. So crucial to understand. And because God began that good work in them, they turned and they put their trust in Jesus Christ. They were united to Christ. They were forgiven for all their sins, justified, clothed with Christ's righteousness, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were adopted into God's family. And for, from then on, God is rejoicing over them to do them good with all his heart and all his soul. So God began the good work in them. But Paul's point is not that just that God began the good work in them, Paul is saying that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you can look at your heart and say, I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and my treasure, God began that good work in you. That is awesome. The God of the universe has shown mercy to you and changed your heart. Look at that. See that. And not only is that incredible news, But the fact is that because God started that good work in you, he never starts that good work and then stops it. He always brings that work to completion. So he will keep you growing in obedience all the rest of your Christian life. He will not let you fall away from the faith so that you would end up not being saved. He will certainly bring you all the way to heaven. The God who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is beautiful. Here's why this is so important. Some of us see the Christian life like this. It's like, here we are in the, in the wilderness of sin. And way off there in the distance is the mountain peak of heaven. Okay? Oh, man, and there's, there's you know, lush green valleys there, and there's streams flowing down, and man, we, we want to go there. We, but between here and there, I mean, look, look at what, I mean, there's swamps of temptation between here and there, Right? There's deserts of difficulties between here and there. I mean, there's, there's quicksand of, of problems between here and there. I mean, how am I ever going to make it all the way through all those difficulties and get to heaven? And if you're struggling with that, you're not seeing the whole picture. So I tried to think of a way to illustrate this, and here's the best one I could come up with. What you're not seeing is that, is that God has pulled up alongside of you with the Humvee of salvation, Okay? Bear with me here, the Humvee of salvation. And God works in your heart so that you want to get in through faith in Jesus Christ. And you, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are in the Humvee of salvation. And that Humvee of salvation, God says, trust me, we are going to make it all the way. Okay? Deserts of difficulties, it won't be easy, but we're going to make it. Okay? Just trust me. And, you know, quicksand of, of trials, we are going to make it. And swamps of temptations, we are going to make it. Because that Humvee of salvation will take you through every obstacle, every difficulty. He will keep you persevering in faith all the way until you reach glory. So do you see again how in this section Paul is emphasizing it's God's power that enables you to live the Christian life and to obey. It's God's power. It's God's power. Okay, that's the second emphasis here. Then third, this is beautiful how Paul does this. He wants to assure them even more. 
And so he says this in verses 7 and 8. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Okay, somebody might be saying, well, Paul, I mean, is, why do you think that about us? It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace, partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wants to strengthen their confidence in what God has done and what God will do even more. And so he's anticipating, some of them may be wondering, Paul, why do you think I, that God has started a good work in me? Okay, and, and Paul says, let me tell you why. It's right for me to, to feel this way about you. And the reason is because he feels Christ-centered affection for them. Now, let me try to explain it like this. When, when God begins a good work in you, he gives you a new nature. And that new part of that new nature is you delight to receive God's grace. You love receiving God's grace. You walk through life trusting God's grace, relying on God's grace, receiving God's grace. You just, you, you, your treasure is God's grace. Okay? Now, that's your, it's your heart. What happens when you meet someone else who delights in God's grace? So here this person is, they love God's grace. They cherish God's grace. God's grace is their treasure. They're brimming with God's grace. They're displaying God's grace. And you who love God's grace, see somebody else who loves God's grace, there's going to be a Christ-centered affection between the two of you. Not just like, you know, we both like the 49ers or we, you know, like to talk stocks or something, but no, this is a spiritual, supernatural, Christ-centered affection. You know how you feel that with people who love the Lord Jesus. It's just like there's a bond between your hearts. And Paul is saying, I love you with a Christ-centered affection, which is only possible. I mean, Paul loves his enemies. Paul loves those who throw him in prison, right? But the love he has for believers is different. There's a Christ-centered affection and a yearning of his heart with what he calls the affection of Christ Jesus. So again, his point here. In verses 3 through 8, is he wants to assure them that they've been saved, okay? And so because of that, they can know. Because they can, they can look at their hearts, they're, they're trusting Jesus Christ now, and because they're trusting Jesus Christ, they can know God started a good work in them. And because God started that good work in them, they can know for sure God will continue the good work in them. Now, do you understand this, Mercy Hill Church? God is going to continue the good work in you. God's going to do it. He promises. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will motivate you. He will give you all the grace you need for whatever he calls you to do. God is going to do this. God does not say, here you are in the, in the wilderness of sin, and there's the mountain peaks of heaven. Okay, let's see what you can do. Ooh. Oh. Oh. That's not what God does, because that's exactly how he'd be responding if it was up to us. God says, get in the Hummer. We're going. The one who began a good work in you, he will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why, if you're trusting Jesus Christ right now, you can be completely certain you will be in heaven. Not because you're so spiritual, not because you're so strong, but because he is so strong and because he's promised to keep you persevering all the way till the end. So encouraging, so crucial. Now, 
I need to mention one other thing, though, um, because you could get the wrong idea about this. You could hear that it's God who enables you to obey. It's God who continues the good work. It's God who does the heavy lifting here. All of that's true. But you could conclude that then what we do is we, we just be passive. Because, right? I mean, I want to honor. It's God who does the work, so I, I'm not going to do anything here until he does. It's not how the Bible talks. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, love your enemies. Put on compassion. Right? Forgive those who hurt you. Pray without ceasing. Fight the fight of faith. So the Bible calls us to do things. Well, why would the Bible call us to do things if it's God ultimately who does them in and through us? It's because that's the means God uses. One, he starts with the command. You read, love your enemies. Okay, and God, by the Holy Spirit, will work through that command. Touch your heart. So, okay, I'm going to make the choice here to love my enemies. That was all God's doing, and you chose to do it, and that was all God's doing. So do you see, this is so important, because there are groups in, in church history who have been called uh, pacifists, pacifists, anyway, and they think, well, just, we, we, we just wait until God moves us to do something. And the Bible doesn't say, wait until God moves you to do things. The Bible says, go into all the world and make disciples. The Bible says, put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. The Bible says, meditate on God's word day and night. And so the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through those commands, and we say, I want to obey you. Help me. Change my heart. We, We look to Jesus. We trust him. I'm not very motivated. I'm fearful. I'd, I'd rather watch television than do that or whatever. And we say, change my heart. We open up the word. We pray over strategic scriptures. We ask for more of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And as we do that, we will experience God changing our hearts. And then as we obey, we're looking to him by faith. We're trusting him. Do the work. Motivate me. Give me the grace I need. Help me. So it's all looking to Jesus. It's all grace coming from Jesus. It all brings glory to Jesus. But we're not passive in the process. Are we clear? Okay, very important. All right, now, why is this truth then so important? Why is it so important for these believers to understand that it is God who enables them to obey? Why is that so important? And I, th- I think one reason is because Paul knows that the commands he's going to give them in this book uh, could easily feel impossible for them to do. Think about what Paul commands in this letter. I just kind of made a, made a list. Uh, and, and think about how impossible these could sound. Overcome your differences and love each other. Okay, Do you have differences with anybody in the body of Christ and somebody who's hurt you here not loving? And if somebody says, um, overcome your differences and love each other, that could feel impossible, couldn't it? Some of you might be thinking, Yes. Okay. Paul also says, keep sharing the gospel with your friends and neighbors, no matter the cost. If you're facing cost, that could feel impossible, right? Paul says, count each other as more significant than yourselves. Lay aside your differences. Love each other. Come together. Be of one mind. Be of one spirit. Okay, that could feel impossible. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Okay, some of you are probably heartbroken by trials. How is that possible? 
Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Wow, really? I mean, if you take these for what they're saying. Paul says, be content in Christ no matter what the circumstances. Okay, so all of these can feel impossible. And they are for us. This is so important to understand. If you look at the command and you look at you and you think, oh, that's impossible, you're right. Okay? But you don't just look at the command and you look at you. You look at what Paul has been saying so far. It is God who enables us to obey. And so God wants us to come to him and to say, help me. Pour out fresh work of your spirit upon me. And you open up the scriptures and you you look at at relevant strategic scriptures which would speak to that command and to God's promises and and say, Lord, fill me with this. Change my heart with, with who you are. Help me to love this person who's hurt me. Help me to treasure Christ more than the possible cost of sharing the gospel. Work in my heart. And as you do that, God will work in your heart. Your heart will change. Motivation will arise. Power will come. And then you step out and start obeying, and, and the, the, the work will increase. His, his work in your heart will increase. It will happen. There will be more. And you step out, but he clearly is the one who is enabling you to obey. And as a result, you will be able to lay aside your differences and love each other. Okay, You will be able to keep sharing the gospel, no matter the cost. You will be able to count each other as more significant than yourselves. You will be able to rejoice in the Lord always. That can be mingled with tears, but it still can be joy in the Lord always. And you don't need to be anxious about anything. And you'll experience growth in that and you'll be content in Christ no matter what the circumstances. Because God is the one who enables us to obey. God does the heavy lifting. It's God's power. So trust him. Now, I would guess that there's some of you um, where there may be something God is calling you to do or a command that's in the scriptures that you're you're nagged with guilt about, and you've categorized that as just too hard for me. And the Lord wants to call you today to understand that that's a lie. Well, it's partially true. It is too hard for you. But this is not just about you. The one who began the good work in you, he will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, now, what questions does this raise? Does it make sense? Am I in sync with the passage? Um, how do you live this out? How have you experienced this? What questions? Raise your hand. We'll bring a mic over to you. Yes, sir. Josh. I'm just um, wondering what your thoughts were on verse 6. Says, uh, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work of you in you will perfect. Excuse me, perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, I was just wondering why he referred to the day of Christ Jesus and didn't say like until you die. Right? Why? Why? I'm wondering is he kind of bringing in this this overtone of like the new body, right? Which that's what I'm. That's what I'm bringing into this, that he's talking about, you know, it's not just, I guess, being free from sin, it's he who has died is free from sin, it's more than that, it's bringing in this, this other component, like the, the new body, not just not sinning. And in, 
That's right. In 20, chapter 3, 20 and 21, he deals with that very strongly, right? And so maybe he's setting the, because he's going to be talking about how God will transform our humble, lowly bodies into conformity with, with Christ's body, and that's the resurrection. That's the day of Christ. So maybe that's where he's going with that. It's a good question. Other thoughts? So why, why does he say until the day of Christ Jesus, not just say until the day that you die? Any, any other thoughts as to why Paul might put that emphasis there? It's a good question. These are the kind of questions we want to be asking. Why is he saying that? Jason? Here's a, here's a mic for you. Okay. Yes. Okay, but I, I may be mistaken, but I think that the phrase day of Christ Jesus usually is a reference to the second coming yeah. as opposed to the day when I die. Yeah. Okay, so help me, I didn't, I'm, I'm okay. I appreciate it. Okay, all right, all right, keep it coming. Josie, let's have, let's have a mic here. Well, isn't the completion of all the, all the work, all the, all the redemption, the judgment, when, he, when, when God comes down to give us our new bodies and bring the heavens to the earth? That's the completion of the story. So yes. That would, be the, that would be the very end, the actual goal. Yes, that's right. And so he, Paul's pointing towards that which is the completion of everybody's journey, right? And he will complete everybody's journey at that point because that'll be the, the end. Some people won't die. Some people will just go straight to, 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 to Christ. So, yeah. yeah, okay. Thanks, Josie. Okay, Minglan. Thanks, Jerry. Yes. The you is a plural, yes. 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 Good observation. Okay. Thanks, Minglan. Yeah. right good point we can make yeah good thank you excellent natasha Good. Thank you. Okay. Let me bring uh, one more. Marcia. Um, 
I was just thinking that um, we shall be like him. So it's just an encouragement that he's never going to stop until we are like him. We will be like him. Good. Good. Okay. Yes. Good. Thank you. Now here's the application I want to encourage us with, and that is, uh, I would guess that some of you, like I said earlier, um, have something that the Lord's called you to do or has brought into your mind or a command in the scripture, and you have kind of pushed it off a little bit because you think it's impossible. Or, if that's not the case with you, then the, 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 the day will come when that is the case. Okay? We all can struggle with thinking, well, that's just too hard for me. And see, the reason that that lie from Satan can get in is because it's partially true, right? And it's a humbling thing to say, Lord, this is too hard for me. I cannot do this. I need you. I need your grace. I need the work of your Holy Spirit. I need your power. Help me. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my obedience. I've been praying, you know, we just finished working through Psalm 119. I've been praying um, that, I can't think of the verse, but where, he, where the psalmist prays, let no sin have dominion over me. I found it very encouraging to pray that, Lord, today let no sin have dominion over me. If it's up to me, I'm undone, but I'm praying this, your grace, you can totally do that. Do it, I pray. And so when it comes to our obedience as well, ask the Lord to help you to obey. When something seems too hard for you, realize it is. That's why it seems, because it is. But it's not too hard for what the Lord promises to do in you. And so come before him and pray and say, help me to obey. Increase the work of your Holy Spirit in me right now, I ask. And then open up the scriptures, because the Lord, he works through the scriptures. And look at promises that will motivate you. Look at who Jesus Christ is. Look at the treasure that he is. Pray over the promises, pray over the commands, pray over the doctrines, pray, and you will experience your heart changing. And then as you step out to start to obey, you'll experience that change even more. He gives you a a taste of grace, you get up, you start, and then the grace continues to flow. And then when you're done obeying, it'll be clear, to God be the glory. This was not me. I could never have done this, but he did this. He'll get the glory, you get the grace, he gets the praise, you get the joy of obedience, right? He gets the glory in heaven forever, and we get the joy of experiencing all this so that we can delight in him forever as obedient men and women, saints of the Most High. So I want to call you right now. Some of you are struggling with this, and this is what God's saying to you. He will enable you. He will enable you. He will enable you. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Is it because we're so strong? <laughs> no. It'd be way too much for any of us. But it's because his power strengthens us. His power changes us. His power motivates us. His power enables us. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Father, I ask for those who right now have areas of obedience where they have thought, that's too hard. I can't do that. And they have put you and your word at arm's length because of that. And I pray, Lord, that through these precious verses in Philippians chapter 1, that you would help them see the truth that you are the one who started the good work in us. You are the one who will complete the good work in us. You are the one who will enable them to obey. Lord, right now, 
strengthen their faith with that truth. Right now, encourage their heart. Lord, those who are in difficult marriages, those who are struggling to be loving at work, those who are being tempted towards greed or lust or pride, you enable us. You will give us what we need. And so, Lord, I pray that right now you would strengthen their faith, that they would look to you, they would cry out to you, they would pray for more of the work of your spirit, they would open up the word and and seek you in the word, and that then you would do what you've promised and pour out your heart-changing work afresh so they can then start to obey and delight in watching your grace at work in them. Please, Father, do that in all of us. I pray that today would be a, a change day, a turning point day for many here at Mercy Hill. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.